So good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Environmental Social Justice. Today, we have a special guest, Mr. Garrett Wong. He is the Climate Program Manager for the County of Santa Barbara. That is a very large job that you have, Garrett. So please tell us everything you guys are working on with respect to the climate change issue, flooding, fires, everything you're doing. Okay, no how pressure. long do I have? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you for so much for having me. Um, again, my name is Garrett Wong. I'm the Climate Program Manager for the County of Santa Barbara, and I've had this job for just under two years. Um, but the county, before I got here, uh, was already active in working on both climate mitigation and adaptation. Um, and, and that really uh, accelerated, particularly after the events that happened with the Thomas fire, um, which at the time was the second largest uh, fire in California's history. Um, and that's now been um, surpassed by a few other fires in recent years, but it was particularly devastating uh, fire. Uh, a lot of people were displaced and had to evacuate uh, during that situation. And then um, and then a couple of weeks thereafter, there was uh, heavy rainfall. Um, this happened all in the month of December. Right. And then there was the uh, debris flow event that happened in the community of Montecito. And um, oh, yeah. um, 23 or 24 people uh, were killed. Um, in that debris flow because it happened in the middle of the night. So um, it was a very unfortunate event and really rocked the community. Um, but what happened after that, I think, um, was really, you know, a testimony to the resilience that the community uh, demonstrated. People came together, um, we've rebuilt, um, and there have been, there's just been a lot more activity, uh, more community-based organizations have organized, and um, there's, a lot more momentum to um, to prepare and to continue to to build um, resilience in the community. Um, so as I I've come into the into the county, I've seen a lot of the work that's happening on the ground. Um, the county is also leading on a wide variety of of long range planning activities related to climate, um, and so I, I saw this activity and I decided to create what's called the One Climate Initiative. Yes. And so uh, we have, the county has a tagline, um, One County, One Future. And that's to, that's the, you know, a, a brand and a motto to try and tie together all the disparate parts of the county and the different personalities of our communities um, and really link our destiny together. You know, we don't succeed unless we're all in this together. Very true. And so One Climate felt a very appropriate extension of that um, tagline. And so uh, what we're doing right now, we have several flagship projects under the One Climate Initiative. Uh, the first one is the one that I'm working on, which is the 2030 Climate Action Plan. And that's a, pro that's a plan to reduce uh, the county's um, emissions 50% by the year 2030. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Sure. Um, the next project is the climate change vulnerability assessment, uh, hmm. where we're looking at, at the climate change hazards that are likely to happen in our county and the potential impacts, the populations that could be threatened, uh, those who are vulnerable amongst us um, who are likely to be um, impacted greater than others and other, you know, our natural and our physical infrastructure um, that could be affected also. And then once we've you know done that study through the assessment, then 
will start to um, make policies and make plans to adapt and prepare for those impacts um, in ways that we can potentially mitigate them or adapt or prepare for the likely um, impacts. The third project is an active transportation plan. Um, the county has never done that before either. And so um, we're looking at all the uh, pedestrian and, and biking infrastructure in the county and wanting to make it safer, more comfortable and more accessible so that people have, have options other than driving them themselves in a, in, a, in a vehicle. So all those projects are being led by different departments and divisions of the county and one climate helps to bring them all together in a way that's a little bit more accessible, a little more digestible um, for the community to engage with. So you have a lot of free time on your hands, clearly. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness though, one thing I wanted to, like most people don't realize this is a community-wide event. So this can't be one household house hardening and another household doing this. And just for viewers out there, when we have these wildfires in California, and then you have a rainstorm afterwards, you get these debris flows or mud flows that are just as destructive and devastating as the wildfire. So it's all chain reaction, it's all related to each other. And we do need a community-wide response where everyone's engaged. How do you best achieve that? How do you get people that say, you know, I can't be bothered or I don't think it's a big deal. So what's the most positive way to get somebody engaged in the community? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, that, I don't think that's a, a problem that we've completely solved, but I think, you know, we need to continually have these conversations. We need to have them more than once and we need to have them when we're not constantly in a fire drill. Um, yes. People don't want to have to make hard decisions when they've just evacuated, when they've just lost their home. Um, that's not the right time to make alternative decisions about relocating or, or rebuilding somewhere else. Or um, we need to make the, we need to have these kinds of conversations in an ongoing basis in ways that we can de-escalate the, the emotional um, tension um, that tends to occur during these kinds of conversations. Um, one of the things I think about is, um, you know, you were talking about the kind of the situations with wildfire and debris flow events. Um, the other is sea level rise. And yes. sea level rise in my mind is a slow moving crisis. You know, it's one that's, uh, you know, decades off and, you know, we're somewhat able to chart, uh, you know, a, pat, uh, a trajectory in terms of, you know, when the sea levels might actually rise. Um, but with wildfires, they can happen any, any year um, at any intensity and any frequency. Um, and we, we're not really able to, to really predict when and where they will happen. Um, but, you know, with sea level rise, there's already that conversation of mapping the flood extent, mapping the storm surges and mapping the potential flood in, flooding, flooded areas, and then mm -hmm. starting to make essentially new plans for the community. Um, you know, if there are properties or infrastructure that get damaged, you know, uh, to a certain extent or to a certain frequency, then, um, or they're uninhabitable, then, you know, there, there will be triggers that will essentially create a movement away from, uh, from the water um, over time. And so, you know, that's a more of a steady pace of community transition. Um, but that, that kind of 
Um, you know, that kind of planning hasn't yet happened in the wildfire space. So I think, you know, being able to kind of have that this whole holistic kind of community vision uh, for the future, um, kind of taking to taking into stock, you know, what are the potential impacts, where are the habitable areas? And then that, you know, we haven't even talked about, um, you know, the, the housing requirements that will also be um, included within these communities. So yeah, it's a, it's a perfect storm, you know, from a political standpoint, in terms of all the issues that need to come together. And we will be forced into difficult decisions when we're talking about density, when we're talking about um, zoning and we're talking about private property um, and who's able to do what and for how long will they be able to do it for um, those are all open questions that we haven't decided completely so okay this is a lot to digest. <laughs> um, so I guess one of the things, so actually, I have a couple of things that I'll bring up really quick so one is so we had the big fire last year or the year I think the year before and it was in Northern California oh uh-huh yeah the the fire you know, that kind of, that was basically sparked, correct me if I'm wrong, but by aging infrastructure. So the power lines kind of sparked and caused this thing. So that kind of leads you into the next thing, which is when you're talking about the housing from the rising sea levels, how do you go into these areas and add the infrastructure when we haven't even maintained the past? So at that one, but then there's a really cool thing which I saw today I've been reading articles on it for the past day or two that I think in California, they're trying to address abandoned shopping malls. And that can be an area to tear down and build housing. But of course, you've got the zoning issue. So I think they're trying to figure out a way to bypass the zoning issue to just say, you know what, these things are sitting here dilapidated, they're falling apart, they're vacant. Knock those down and let's turn this into housing. So I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do this. I don't, I'm not sure if that applies too much to the Santa Barbara and Montecito area, but I know like the aging infrastructure would. So I'll go back to that one. When you come to trying to talk about, you know, people moving and where they're gonna go next, how can we keep building forward when we've got so far behind on just power lines, let alone roads and sewers and everything else that comes into play? No pressure. But softball. You just threw me softball easily answered. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think one of the things that I enjoy about the field that I'm in is that it, I get to I get to uh, dabble in a lot of different fields, um, whether it's planning, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's community programming, whether it's you know transportation, housing, electricity. Um, you know, I, I kind of have this holistic view of of all these um, phenomena and all these trends and all these um, kind of issues that are that are kind of um, moving um, the way that government, and this is not a critique on the county, particularly this is kind of government writ large, you know, the way that government's organized is really, you know, each department and division has one, you know, typically one function, right? Um, and that's where our challenge is, is, you know, how do we take into account, again, these multifaceted issues some are coming out of different fields and different sectors, but are nonetheless having some kind of impact on the work that we're doing. Um, and then how do we make smarter decisions about, you know, the limited time and money uh, that we have to invest in the community when it comes to certain kinds of projects and, you know, community initiatives. Hmm. Um, you know, and, and in very simple ways, like, you know, one of the ways that, you know, we try to be efficient is, you know, 
you know, when we're when you know, when governments are repaving roads, they communicate with all the with all the utilities and all the telecommunication companies and say, look, we're going to be repaving this boulevard. We're going to be digging up the old asphalt. Now's the time to put in any conduit or any you know any infrastructure underneath the ground that you need to do it because after once we repave this this road, you're not going to be able to come back for you know at least 10, 15 years. So they're trying, you know, in, in small ways, uh, you know, we try and, and leverage, you know, the work and investment that's already happening. So we're not trying to, um, you know, put go back to the same spot and reinvest. When it comes to the energy system, um, there's a lot at, happening at the local level to to. So sorry, let me let me back up from there. So on the with the energy system, uh, you know, we're we're kind of in the middle. We're in a growing pain kind of moment. You know, we're going from a grid 1.0 to a grid 2.0 situation, and 1.0 is, you know, heavily centralized. Um, it's fossil fuel based. Mm-hmm. It's controlled by a monopoly, and um, and it's essentially unilateral. There's only energy going out in one direction, and grid 2.0 it's decentralized. We have power, you know, power generating systems um, in the community on rooftops. Uh, we have electric vehicles and battery systems, microgrids, right? So that's decentralized energy systems. Uh, it's going in both directions. Um, you know, we're sending power back into the grid. We're holding on to power for the utility grid um, and we're responding to signals from the utility grid to, to either use or conserve energy at certain times. Um, and then there's also, you know, a movement for local governments to take more ownership over um, power procurement and delivery through community choice energy. We can talk about that in a, in a different yeah um, later that's, on. That's but a whole, that's a whole other show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but again, so there's this transition from grid 1.0 to grid 2.0, and uh, communities are more interested in investing in resilient energy infrastructure uh, because we've gone through you know a series of years where we've had wildfires we've had high heat events yeah the power system that's currently in place is not well served to meet this these new extremes um and so we've felt the impacts of power safety shutoffs and rolling blackouts now um and now we want to have systems that we're more in control of that are serving the community's needs, particularly during these times of crises, um, as well as reducing the carbon emissions associated with all that. So um, so through community choice energy, I think there's a lot more opportunity for local governments to reinvest um, the money that used to be paying to you know our utilities and reinvest them in local projects and local resilient energy systems. I know that a lot of utility companies, primarily energy companies um, or electric, they know that they have to get away from fossil fuels. They are focusing on alternative energy sources. Are they working with you for these microgrids or um, having these, you know, decentralized um, utilities or are you finding them to be a little more challenging? So the, the, it's a little bit of both. So the public utilities commission does, you know, so there's many different players in the system. So we have the state legislature; um, they've passed some 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 bills. 
uh, and that's given some direction to the Public Utilities Commission. And then the Public Utilities Commission starts to work with the utilities to say, look, you have this state mandate and now you have to start, you know, enabling microgrid development. Um, yes. Microgrids, uh, you know, just so people are all aware, you know, microgrids are, you know, kind of supposed to be self-contained systems that have their own power to generate on site, their ability to store that power on site, and essentially ability to disconnect from the utility grid um, when there are power outages, right? So they're, so they're self-sustaining um, systems. Um, but for the most part, they're connected to the utility grid, um, you know, 364 days out of the year. And so um, these are, 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 for as much as we talk and hear about microgrids, there are not that many of them um, yeah. because they're, 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 it takes a lot of money, it takes a lot of technology. Not everyone has a technical capacity to, to get these things going. Um, and so right now, as we're even, as we're even you know, talking about microgrids, there's this conversation brewing about what to do with all the solar that's on people's rooftops. Um, because that's causing a, a situation uh, for the utilities to manage when it comes to paying people for the amount of um, solar generation that they're putting back onto the utility grid and not consuming within their own property, right? So microgrid is a wholly, you know, is a, a, even a further extension of that. And so all that means is basically, you know, this grid point one, you know, it's grid one to 2.0 shift is kind of really kind of putting the utility against itself in certain ways, you know, it's not, it's, it's business, you know, utilities business model as it is right now in California is really based on infrastructure. Um, you know, they're, they're getting, they're getting told and they're getting paid to build the distribution and transmission lines that connect our communities and then to make them safe. Um, <laughs> we could have a whole nother conversation about whether or not they're doing a good job on that, but that's what they're getting paid to do. Yeah. That's, um, you know, that's where the investment goes. And so um, if there are more decentralized systems in the communities that will essentially obviate the need for that investment, we're taking a bit of their, you know, we're taking a cut from their, um, you know, from their bottom line. And so, yes, they want to be good actors in the sense that they don't want to be responsible for more outages, for more wildfires. Um, and public health and safety issues related to their infrastructure and their systems. Um, but at the same time, they are still very large industries that um, are needing growth in their business model. And so, you know, I think that that begs the question of whether or not they are the right entities to deliver some of these programs. Um, and so again, community choice energy programs are a good alternative to those systems. Um, municipal utility districts are good alternatives to those systems as well. Um, but those are, you know, those can be pretty radical shifts from what people have come to expect from their, from their local government. Yeah, I mean, I know, I've talked to several people within the utility companies, primarily electric companies, and um, they do know change is coming. They do know that they need to adapt and modify their previous historical actions. But change is hard. Change comes slowly, and unfortunately, our time frame is not allowing for that slow change. So we do need to kind of kick it into a, a higher gear and do things more quickly, especially with microgrids. 
Um, I've been talking about the necessity for that for years. But um, shifting over to floods, because you do have the best of both worlds. You have the flooding issue and you have the fire issue. <laughs> um, I do know that University of Santa Cruz is heavily involved in um, flooding mitigation and shoreline restoration. And one of the things they talk about for this section of the world is kelp forests. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, are you actively looking into that? I know mangroves won't grow here, coral reefs won't grow here, but other things you can do to help with your flooding situation or sea level rise. Yeah, so um, at least on the South Coast, the South, you know, when we talk about Santa Barbara County or people think about Santa Barbara, I think they mostly think of our kind of our iconic South Coast uh, area of, of our county area. Um, and the beaches on the south coast are not very wide if they are you know sandy beaches um most of the other kind of part of our beaches are backed by bluffs um mm -hmm. there are some parts of our beaches that um have marshes or um have sloughs that are um that they're connected to or they're slightly disconnected but adjacent to um and so we are having conversations around sediment management um, and both natural as well as, you know, man kind of manual management. Um, and I think, you know, one way that I'd like us to think about it is, you know, looking at the natural system as it was meant to be. Um, you know, we've created dams to store water and to have hydroelectric power. Uh, we've channelized our creeks to you know, better allow floodwaters to leave the community. But at the same time, what we've done is we've essentially plugged up the man, the, we've plugged up the natural flow of sediment from the land out to the ocean and back onto the beaches. Right. And, and that's, you know, that's, again, thinking about local governments, you know, how we function, you know, the flood control district is, you know, focused on managing and mitigating flood. Uh, we have a beach and nourish, you know, we have a beach nourishment um, kind of joint powers authority between Ventura County and, and Santa Barbara County communities. And they're focused on replenishing the beaches um, for, uh, for certain situations. But, you know, when those you know, when those two agencies come together and, and what kind of conversation do they have and what their ability to, is to think about this holistic kind of cycle of sand and sediment, um, you know, I think is, is a, would be an evolution of the way that we are kind of conceiving our relationship to the natural world um, and what the natural kind of systems are meant to do. So. In small well. ways, I think those conversations are happening, but I think, you know, more, you know, and we need to elevate, um, we need to elevate that conversation. Absolutely. Now, the, respecting the natural resources and the natural flow of sediment is very important because dams do withhold that. Jetties withhold that, you know, people put a jetty or a seawall up thinking they're doing the right thing. It's actually starving the sediment transport from further down shore. So we do need to recognize that. Um, so with, I know the community engagement is huge for you guys. And on your website, you do ask people to participate. What's the best way someone can find you if they want to participate? And is it only restricted to people who live in Santa Barbara County? 
No, no. So, um, you know, you can go to our website at countyofsb.org slash one climate. Um, that's where the uh, flagship projects that I mentioned are, um, those are the project pages there. And we have uh, different kinds of tools for engaging with the community. Um, so we have, you know, we're obviously doing this and we're hopefully on the tail end of, of kind of being closed in through the pandemic, but you know, we've tried to do this as virtually as possible, you know, creating as many opportunities uh, for people to engage online and on Zoom um, where possible. And um, and so that's where you can find all the information. We have surveys, we have uh, an ideas wall um, where you can uh, post your ideas. Uh, we also have interactive maps if you want to, you know, put something on the map and call out something that's important or something that you're concerned about. Um, and so those are kind of the, the main tools that we have, but we all also have uh, workshops uh, coming up and we'll, I think, you know, in the future, once um, things are opening up more, we'll, we'll likely have more in-person events coming up. And at any point in time, um, I'll, at least, I'll, at least, I'll at least volunteer myself, but at any point in time, if anyone's interested, then uh, I'd be happy to you know, offer a presentation and have a discussion with anyone who's interested in hearing. That's to. fantastic. That's that's very important because a lot you know people want to get engaged. They just don't know how, and that's what this platform is for. Exactly. People find the resources, find the people like you that are actively doing it and looking for help. So on that, Joel, if you have any closing out questions that you'd like to ask, no, I think you've got a lot to do, my friend. Yes, you're really slightly busy. I'm like, that's awesome. No, I think it's you're looking at some huge projects, and they're not going to be easy answers. In, I mean, especially when you talk about like the electric, I mean, my initial thought was on that was like, okay, great jobs We're you know, you're talking about these massive industries and then what do you do with the jobs for the people? I mean, it's such a multi-layered thing. Yeah. When people take a second to, to really step back, you can start evaluating how much this impacts, not just ourselves or to, it's a lot to digest, especially this early in the morning for me. Uh, <laughs> I've only had two cups of coffee, so that's not nearly enough for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> just say. Um, but no, if we have a, a couple more minutes, I'll just. Uh, yeah. Do you have of a couple course. more minutes? You, no, take as long as you want. Okay. Um, so I talked a lot about the county, but um, you know, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about you know all the all the other agencies and stakeholders that we work with. So, um, you know, we recognize. You know, for by and large, a lot of the work that the county does is kind of focused on the unincorporated county, um, and that kind of carves out the areas that the cities are largely responsible for. We coordinate a lot with the cities um, in order to make sure that we're aligned and coordinating, collaborating um, when it comes to our infrastructure and our planning. Uh, we want to make sure that people feel connected when they leave a city and are passing through the county, or vice versa. Um, that you know the infrastructure doesn't all of a sudden just kind of stop um, once they pass the, the political boundary, um, and then you know we're we've we've recognized that obviously climate change does not respect those political boundaries. Not our solutions are, need to be regional in nature, um, and so we've created a regional climate collaborative, uh, which is a, a network that we're growing uh, for both public and private and nonprofit. Um, actors to come together and really um, kind of get roll their sleeves up and work on working solutions. Um, some that may not even exist, um, but coming together to create a, a working space for um, 
for different stakeholders and come up with solutions that are, you know, no one entity can, can deal with on their own. Um, and then the other piece I'd like to kind of briefly touch on is our, uh, we have an equity advisory and outreach committee. So um, you know, once we started the One Climate Initiative, we really wanted to lead with equity in mind. And um, we formed a committee uh, and um, we worked with local community-based organizations to conceive of what this committee uh, makeup would be and what they would be in charge of. And um, we really wanted to leverage the county's role um, in all the different projects that we have going on and really kind of funnel the work through this committee. So that way, you know, different departments and divisions or different agencies and in, in the cities wouldn't have to come up with a, their own equity committees because um, they don't have, you know, the same amount of resources and time and effort to, to pull it together. So yeah. hopefully what we're creating and will will be a long standing uh, institution, um, one that will have more regional impact and influence when it comes to, you know, really bringing equity into um, regional planning and governance. Um, so those are other areas that were that I'm also very active in is kind of in our external collaboration and um, integrating equity into our regional governance. No, it's extremely important, actually. And I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't have it read, written down as one of the bullet points to discuss. And I was so focused on fires and flood, I forgot to bring that up. So thank you for, for bringing that in. <laughs> There's people also in the, in the way of those fires and floods. So we got to talk about the people too. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand with um, when we do have the fires and floods, you do have something called climate migration where people are displaced from their homes. And it's either yeah. the home's completely gone or they can never go back. Climate Resolve did a great paper on that after the Woolsey fire of the climate migration issue because a lot of people were forced to leave. I'm sorry? Or they just can't afford to go back. I yeah. mean, it's a lot cheaper for people to move than it is to try to rebuild, unfortunately. Especially if you don't have um, sufficient insurance, which the insurance side is my background, and that's a whole nother discussion, is how the insurance industry is responding to all of these brand new issues that we have with climate change. But um, on that, thank you so much. And again, Garrett Wong, County of Santa Barbara, you have a very large job, and I thank you for doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's just easy, easy. Hopefully, I don't have do it alone. We definitely have a team, and we have a lot of other folks in the county who are working on on their 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 part as well. So, just take I hear get to talk about it. Just take the credit. It's fine. All right, <laughs> no, thank you. It's all you. <laughs> well, thank you guys. This has been awesome. And um, thank you for sharing everything you guys are working on because it's hugely important to address these climate change issues, especially in an area where you're so heavily affected by both fires and floods and helping with the equity. So thank you again. This has been wonderful. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And we'll see you guys later. Bye.